connecting is a call to action in business across five key audiences, prospects, clients, team, industry, and community. Strong ties with each provides happiness, support, and a sense of purpose. Each week, I'll be meeting valuable people in business who will share their ideas of how to have healthier work lives and grow a network of supporters. I'm Lindsay Houston, and I run Storytellers Australia, a content and marketing business in Sydney. Our next guest is a strong advocate of education, equality and evolution. As a serial entrepreneur, he has used his value to lift startups to higher ground and stoke innovation. His experience has identified the importance of partnerships in building businesses, and he now is teaching and advising industry leaders to drive success through a wider network. A TEDx speaker, associate professor, and girl dad, Phil Hay St. Clair. Thanks for talking to us, Phil. Sure. Great to be here. Tell us about your new venture. You've started something new recently, hey? Oh, there's there's always something fun, always something new. Um, My last 25 years or so building companies arrived me at a place where I had to reflect and sort of say, well, what, what was the net value of doing all of that work and all of that work in healthcare and in e-commerce and, and aerospace? And when I looked back, there was one really defining characteristic that went through all of them. And it was, it was quite a surprise to me um, because I'd sort of spent time thinking about, so how do you help people build more businesses? How do you sort of teach people that they don't have to have a normal job. If they have an idea, there's a way to create value by doing that. And the, the major thread through all of them was this idea of building through partnerships or growing through partnerships, because whenever you start to build a company from scratch, you always don't have all the things you need. No. There's, there's always someone who's got something and you're desperately hoping that you can get it all together, make it all work, all the sleepless nights, Hopefully someone will then become a customer. Then hopefully it'll all start to sort of mm. flywheel and work. Um, but every single one of my businesses has um, had partnerships which have enabled it to grow really efficiently. Um, and so my, my, my new practice is all about how you help industry leaders and teams work out how to forge really enduring partnerships. Um, and this is well beyond co-branded campaigns this is into the real depths of there is a company that has a really fantastic capability there is another larger company or smaller company which has a need for that capability and yes. for the most part they'll never talk to each other because they're either worried that you know what if they do what we do what yep. happens if we you know what if what happens if we just don't it doesn't work out the way we want it to work out there's a fear there's a strange fear which yeah. often is not warranted agree um, yeah. And so the process that I've helped sort of design and put into these businesses is here are the steps that you take mm-hmm. to just be human, yes. to have conversations, yes. to be a little bit vulnerable and yeah, to right. say, look, this is what we've got. This is what we do. Um, and I just want to have a conversation with you to see if there's an overlap because my hunch in having a conversation with you is there's, there's probably an overlap somewhere. Yeah. Let's, before we get to a point of competitive tension, Let's yeah. just have a very informal conversation and try and work that out. And as I was reflecting on that over the last 25 years, it was, well, I ha- I've had hundreds if not thousands of those kind of conversations and there was this really repeatable model I kept on using over and over again. It was my, like my playbook. And a really good friend of mine who I built businesses with before said, you just can't, you can't keep that to yourself. Like that's got to be put out into the world. And so yeah. having finished building my last healthcare business, I'm now spending a lot of time thinking about and teaching and educating people about how to do that. Yeah, right. Mm. So something we like to talk about on the podcast with everybody is uh, when I meet someone new, I like to try and identify who they were at school. Mm. So can you tell us a bit about your school persona? Giant, nerd, very few friends, right into sport. Yeah. Um. And I think always a very square peg in a very round, in a sea of round holes. Yeah. So never really found a way to fit that well. Um, we moved around a little bit as a, as, a, as a family, but when we got to our secondary schooling, I found um, the army cadets 
which a lot of schools have party to. And I just absolutely fell in love with this idea of brotherhood okay. as you would go and do the things you do as, a, as an army cadet. Now, that is a really part-time thing when you're at school, right? Obviously, you're there doing sport, studying, attending school. But we had the opportunity from the ninth grade to join our school army cadet unit. Um, and I met people through that, which I just found deeply inspiring. And just it just blew my mind. Because um, Army Cadet in itself, the words, mm, is working together uh, and learning. No doubt. And just having a common mission profile. So somebody says, we're, we're going to go and achieve this together. And whether you like the like that sure, idea or not, sure. you're all doing it, right? And you've got to find a way to make that work. And there was something, uh, I wouldn't say it was romantic, but it was something that just spoke to my brain. And it was, I I am good to operate in teams. And I'm, I'm, I'm as good to be a follower as one day I might be a leader yeah. and I'm excited about that prospect. So that was, <clears throat> that was sort of what I was like as a kid. Um, did raise me well at sport, was a average academic kind of person. I wouldn't, there, there was nothing remarkable about those parts of my life. Um, but when I discovered the military and I discovered, you know, the idea of being a cadet, it, everything changed. Do you think part of that and being an advocate of partnerships is that you found a tribe. So where anything that you struggled with in the past, now you were lifted by the rest of the team. Everyone had their own values and yeah, I mean, value. There are so many lessons that come from learning how to work in a small team. And in the army, you know, the smallest sort of group of people is called a section. That's usually about eight or nine people. Um, and you live with each other, you work with each yeah. other. It's, it's, very, it's a very intentional kind of environment. Um, and you just learn that, you know, everyone's got a, sense of, a different sense of humour, everyone's got a very different background. Um, often there's a, there's a level of education which is quite common, so it would be, you know, grade 10 or grade 12, and people are just trying to find their way through the world. But because you have to go and do all these really difficult things together, often quite physical things, you know, that involve carrying heavy things or not sleeping very much for a long time or whatever the case is, you just have this, it just galvanizes mm. humans to go, actually, I'll go shoulder to shoulder with you, right? And and that yeah. for me, that, that still lives on in me, you know, whenever I create communities or whenever I'm trying to bring people together, the ambition, because you, you don't find that outside of the military. So when I, I finished school, I enlisted in the army <clears throat> and I spent six years in the army before I started building companies. And the thing was that when I came out of the army, it was just unexpected because I couldn't find the same kind of culture. Mm. It was super hard. And I spent a lot of time a bit depressed about, well, is this what the real world's like? Because this sucks, right? Because I just don't, yeah. I, I can't sort of be with the same people that I used to be with before. Um, and so as I've built cultures in my companies, as I've sort of thought about the kind of people I want to invest with, the people I want to sort of engage with, I'm always trying to find those people who we can be shoulder to shoulder with on a particular ambition. Yeah. Even if that's just being a good dad for girls. Yeah. And sort of rallying with the other dads to learn about all the issues that we're trying to solve for as, as fathers of girls and just as you know, middle-aged men. Yeah. Um, but also the way that we sort of think about, well, how do we – how do I partner well with my wife? Because she's the co-captain. Yeah, right. And we've got a lot of, we've got a lot, lot of life to live. You've got a lot of work to do together. Yeah. Right. So we've got, you know, when we think about that idea of partnership, it started at that very, 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 very early stage. And then it's just, it's just persevered all the way through. And that's why I find it really difficult to think about why people want to do things by themselves. Yeah. Because I think, you know, there is so much opportunity using it, that abundance mindset. Um, there is so much to achieve and there are so many people to serve in this world yeah. that if you spend too much time in your own mind, you won't realise just how extraordinary the opportunity is in whatever your niche is, right? So you can be an, you can be an artist, you can be a, a truck driver, all of these skill sets that are so seemingly opposed to one another. Yeah, yeah. They actually have commonality. And don't have a value by themselves. That's right. But together. You, if you're a truck driver and nothing else, then what are you delivering? <laughs> that's right. Well, yeah, I mean, and, and, but outside of that, that key profession, like one of the things we talk about a lot is every identity has three components, right? And when the, the one thing that I struggle with, and most people who come out of the military or first responders, ambulance, drive, you know, ambulance officers, fireys, police, they're known and so so tied to their identity as a as their work, 
right? So I was a soldier. When I came out of the army, that's all I had. Mm. Right? And that wasn't particularly valuable to a whole bunch of people. Like, you want to go and work in a bank, but you're a soldier. How does, how does that work? Like, where's the connection? And so over time, the idea of partnership sort of helped me understand that actually there are probably three major components to the way that people should identify themselves. One is about um, who they're like as a human. Mm. The second one is what is your sort of primary professional capability? And what's the, and the third one is how do you want to be remembered? Yeah. And so when you, you, you had a very generous introduction, you know, I, I say that I'm a girl dad very specifically because I want that to ooze. I am a feminist. This is what a feminist looks like, by the way. Yeah. The idea of helping girls and women have equality and have the, all the things they need to have opportunity and contribute, super important to me because I've seen far too many women who are close to me and beyond who just haven't had that chance. Yeah. And men are to blame. And without so you, gotta it's not going to work. Sure. So yeah. there's got to be. We've got to find a way to partner all that together. In the middle piece, for me, I'm a serial entrepreneur. I love building companies. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a dentist. I'm not none of those things. Entrepreneur. And then the last one, I'm an educator, because I want to be remembered for all the content that we create, all the the lessons that we try and discover and surface. I want them to live on beyond my generation, other generations, because mm. it might short circuit somebody from making the mistakes I've made. So. With all that said and done, um, you know. Sure, because we're a, a content deal. generation. Right. So our idea sharing, the books of the past, is now podcast videos, yeah. educational series, mm -hmm. things like that. It's really important. So what do you think was in the army that wasn't in real life? What values are predominantly <clears throat> missing? Um, I think... The, 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 the key one is that there is a sense of pride for the uniform and its history yeah. that represents every time you put the uniform on. Um, and, you know, most people from the outside will look at the military and go, very structured, very organised, very focused. And, of course, it is a number of those things. But what happens on the inside, which people often get very badly wrong, is that um, it's very command and control. So the guy or the girl at the top says something and everyone just falls into line. But there is an enormous amount of creative thinking and leadership that goes in at the very grassroots level sure, sure. where the best leaders there will say, um, you know, my boss has told me we need to achieve this thing or we've got to go and do this thing, whatever it is. Um, and the best leaders in the military and in government actually will go to their team and say, so guys and girls, we've got to achieve this thing. Here's yeah. my intention. Here's the mission intent that we've got. And I'd actually like for you to spend the next three or four hours, the next day, whatever it is, come up with a plan. Yeah. And I'll just throw you into it. Right. And you've had no, maybe no training in leadership or whatever else, but there's an objective that was made really clear and we have to achieve that by a time. And that gives you a sense of purpose. And that's the key, right? So underneath all of that offering of could you go and help us out with this problem, the boss will come back that afternoon, the next day, and say, okay, so what have we got? And by that time, usually people will self-organise and you'll have a few people speaking, a few people doing supporting things, and then you present back the plan and then the boss will go, actually, it's pretty good. I'm going to sort of round it out with some of the things that I need to make that work and now we can take this to my boss. And that for me was the first time that I'd ever sort of experienced I, as a really small cog in this massive mm. machine, can play a role, not important just in role. an important role, and one where I feel actually I'm valuable in this yes. machine. And I think that's what is lost outside of those kind of organisations, the ability for somebody to genuinely feel that they're valued and that it's not just a big mural on the wall. It's you said you need help, I've delivered the help, you're thanked, and there's a bunch of humour and yeah, yeah, yeah. guff that goes on with that, but you end up contributing and you go home at night time because you did it together with a bunch of people you yeah, really yeah, like. Yeah, yeah. Or you might not like them, but you know you like the, the majority of the people that are there and then you come back out of it and you can do it the next day. Because you can feel okay in your role as a cog if you have a, a purpose. Yes. And, a, and a role to play yep. in that. You're not just simply a cog. No. 
but you're kind of making out the spikes <laughs> yeah. as you go along. That's right. That's right. And I, I think when, um, you know, what we try to do with our, in all the businesses we've built, and I say we because we've always been co-founders, um, we try to find a way to hire the people that are hungry, that not only want to be an individual contributor, but they want to find their own tribe, their own gang, their own group of people where they can go, I'm part of that group. Mm. I'm, I'm, I'm moving this healthcare needle forward. I'm moving this biotechnology needle forward. I'm moving this aerospace position forward. And when you get that right, magic happens because yeah, yeah, yeah. you as the leader don't have to be thinking about everything all the time because you've hired all these incredible people who are thinking about it, not maybe as much as you're thinking about it, but they're thinking about it in a different way more than what they're paid to do because that purpose has unlocked this magical force yeah. which allows, this is why startups that are successful seem to punch above their weight. You might have 10 people in a room working away doing something. They're actually producing the output of 20 or 30 people. Not one person. Not one person by replicated themselves. That's right. 10 so it's, times. It's, it's what we call, a, in the military, we call it a, a force multiplier. It's where you have um, an effort, an input, which through a set of, we'll call it magic, but, you know, through a set of purpose and knowledge and contribution and cohesiveness just produces a bigger output. Hmm. And it's very difficult for other companies to compete that don't have that. Yeah, well, And that's, that's really important. And then alongside your military background, you were also building businesses. What was your first business? My first business was a spectacular failure. Yeah. It was great. Um, but you had fun. Look, <laughs> sometimes you don't know what you don't know. And I think oh, the yeah, thing 100%. was um, it was a consulting business. It was The, the first idea was really um, to help streamline the way that um, receipting happened for donations. Okay. Um, so in Australia, about 35% of people actually use those tax-deductible receipts that they get from a donation in their tax return. Oh, yeah, yeah. The balance I've never don't, done get, it. Don't, yeah, yeah. don't get sort of used. Um, and there's a huge opportunity to make that work because it actually makes the tax system work better if all of that can be accounted for. Mm. Um, and for some reason, you know, I'd raise a lot of money with a bunch of colleagues of mine um, for a cancer research institute. We did a massive charity bike ride. And we just couldn't track that money well enough. And we worked really hard to raise that money. And so one of the things that we tried to work out was, well, where, where is the chink in that in that sort of chain of activities. And we just decided, look, the, the place where we could do the best work is is where this workflow issue was. Um, and we tried to build the software and we had no idea what we were doing. And it was in 2006 or seven. There wasn't all the tools we have now that make it easy to build software like that. Yes. And it was just, we don't know what we're doing. And so we raised a little bit of money. That money became exhausted and then it was like, well, what do we do now? And then we had to go through this, you know, the messy process of winding up a business. I think as well, like when you starting a business, you you don't understand before you've started a business that it is like building a house. You have to cost project. You need Mm -hmm. to schedule things. You need to see what's coming and like, when you're writing a business plan for the first time, you have no scope of any of that. Nope. So, like, a first business is, I, I doubt many first businesses succeed without the guidance, partnership, strong support yeah. of an external. You, you've got to, I mean... There's so many, I mean, hundreds of lessons, right, from all the chapters. And I've built seven companies now. So when I've when I've looked at all the pieces that go into making that failure, I think at some point, you know, if you decide you want to be an entrepreneur and you want to sort of build something new, you have to go through that. It's almost like a rite yeah, of passage, yeah, right? Yeah, you, yeah. you have because to fall off your bike. You have to, right? Because like, yeah, yeah, there's, yeah. there's no way not to know that. And any profession that takes you through an apprenticeship model, like if you start off being a junior lawyer and then you go through all the lawyer ranks, like, it's designed to be an apprenticeship because you you are going to fall off your bike as a junior lawyer, as you will as a junior doctor and as a junior accountant and a junior pastry maker. Like, there's going to be things that just don't work very well and you have to go through that rite of passage. Mm. Um, but there is no doubt that the best way to protect against 
falling off your bike more is to surround yourself with great people. If you can build a culture, which is like the one I described, it makes it even better because you've got more redundancy in those people. They can sort of help you understand where your blind spots are. You can work out all those things with a team as opposed to it all being in your own head. Yeah. And ultimately, Reid Hoffman, um, the co-founder of LinkedIn, um, wrote this fantastic book called The Alliance. And it was all about this notion of, you know, when you're looking to bring people into your business, whether it be mentors or advisors or, or, or employees, it's not about... Um, hiring somebody to do a job to help you do a thing. Mm -hmm. He describes that the best that you can hope for as the employer or the person bringing people in is that you will be an ally for that person, again, shoulder to shoulder. It's a partnership. And that partnership is designed really to last for a very defined period of time. And the intention is you might... Come and you, know, you might want to work with them for 20 years, but the reality is you'll probably work for them for two to three or work with them for two to three years. At the end of that period and through that period, you want to get to know them so well that as the employer or the boss, you're looking for all the opportunities to allow them to go to their next job and yes. actually bless them on the way out. So you're actually, in some cases, doing yourself a disservice by actually developing them to a point where they're doing such a great job and they want to then move to the next thing, yeah. that you're helping them make that leap. And many people go, I, I don't want to do that. Like, I've just invested all this time. These people are fantastic for us. But what tends to happen in that circumstance is that those people come back to you in the future yeah, and you yeah. do more things with them together. It's like a Mariah Carey song. Yes, it's right, just going to go with Christmas, right? So what we've found, uh, we've tried to sort of do that, but the idea, as it is in everything in business, you have to do it through partnership. So I think a thing I'm getting from you is when you start a business, you want to own everything, mm. but you don't own people. And my instincts when I first started was to hire full-time employees to mm-hmm. be part of a team yep. that would be very closed off, yep. whereas probably the better idea would be to outsource and partner up to have that security to build build it up better what what, what are your opinions on that kind of ownership idea so i always think about the value of something that doesn't work which is zero yeah right so you can spend a lot of time thinking about what do you need to build to serve someone sufficiently that they'll pay for it and then more people will do the same um I always think about the sort of a 75-25% rule. When starting something, I need to get to a milestone that demonstrates there's actually something here because we can all have these great ideas, right? And we, mm. we've we probably got 20 or 30 ideas in our mind at any, any given time and they just they cycle through. So if you pick one of those ideas, the trick here is to work out what is the fastest point for you to go from that idea stage to someone actually who doesn't know you, by the way, not your mum or dad, not your kids, not your sisters, brothers, someone who you don't know will actually pull out the card and pay you for whatever the thing is that you're creating. Yeah. So let's imagine that time is, you know, zero to one. There are a lot of things that you can do that um, on reflection are highly controllable things. You can build a website. You can create the value proposition. You can build the thing that you're going to sell. Um, these are all very controllable things. And most, most times people just geek out about those things, right? Because it's, it's safe. Mm. You should be spending 25% of your effort on those controllable things. The 75% of the rest of your time should be spent. As a founder. As a founder. Yeah. Um, should be spent um, talking to people, selling to people, pitching to people, being yeah. out in the world, as we say, getting out of the building. Well, maybe not even just founders, actually. Like thinking well, about actually, anyone who's got an idea, right, or, yeah. or, or and I think they want to try and move forward, it's all about getting feedback. And you can't do that by tinkering on the thing you're trying to make a different shade <laughs> of purple or pink or whatever Sitting the thing is. Sitting at a computer all day. Right. So get, getting out of the building is really important to do that. But what I think most people will agree who have done this before a number of times is that that is the most uncomfortable part. And because mm. humans don't, want to sort of subject themselves to, you know, what if people don't like me, the, the fear of rejection, all the things that come with that, they yeah. tend to sort of come back into the 25% and make that 25% closer to 60 or 70%. Yeah. And they spend a really small amount of time 
pitching and selling and trying to understand if there's actually a market for the thing you're trying to create. So where do you go for that 75%? Um, you get it, you open the door, <laughs> where to? Yeah, so I've built, um, I've built a number of communities that, um, that are there to, uh, I guess, receive pitches and requests um, where there's maybe about 150 of us who have all built businesses before. We've all seen all the all the tricks and all the, the, the okay. trap doors. And we can reach out to each other and say, look, I've got an idea for this. Here's my, here's my one pager. Would love your feedback. And you know that they will be empathetic and compassionate, but they'll be brutal. Yeah. Right? And it'll be, okay. Friendly brutal. Friendly brutal. Yeah. Which is good because you can come back and people can say, okay, well, that's that's been done 900 times before. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. I didn't even know that. Right. So that's great. Put a nail in that idea, move on to the next idea. Um, but it really does come down sometimes to saying, I loved using LinkedIn for this for this purpose. When we were building Drop Bio Health, it was all about at-home blood testing. It was about it was all before COVID. So there was a there wasn't really a, a sense about, you know, would we ever do home testing? You know, now we've gone through COVID, we've all stuck something up our nose, we've all done our at-home testing. Um True, yeah. The question was back then. Who is the great? Well, who are the right people to go and speak to? And it was difficult to know because why would you do a blood test at home? Normally, a doctor would order the test for you. Go to a pathology center, they take the blood, and the rest is history. Um, but what we worked out was that there are some people that really want to know more about themselves, and we could, sometimes they're called biohackers or people who just want to really understand more about their own health. And so we started to yeah. look at where do those people live. There were Facebook groups and there was places online and there were other, you know, places you go to like F45 gyms and all that sort of thing. And we just went to those places and said, hey, listen, we're thinking about this new idea. Could we buy you a coffee? Yeah. And that was to like point blank random strangers. And you just get better at sort of approaching people and having the confidence to say, look, I don't want to waste your time. There's a little bit, there's something in this for you if it's coffee. Um, and yeah. I was like 15 minutes of your time. Yeah. But what I'd love to do is just throw this idea against you and to see what your response is. And that is the, that's the true secret to sort of moving things forward because the more feedback you can get, the better it is that you can create that product or that service. And then hopefully you will steer it in a direction where you can find a large market and it becomes valuable to someone. So before we hopped on the mics, we were talking about as we approach a holiday saying no so how do you go from that 75% getting out there looking for yeses and becoming someone who's such a advocate for the word yes, mm. how do you then say no? It's really hard. Yes. It's, super hard. it's, it's very difficult. Um, so, you know, when I, when I retired out of drop about six weeks ago, um, the ambition was... I'm going to have a really nice long summer with my girls um, and my wife and we're just going to take the time to have our first summer together where there's no real work that needs to be done. Mm. Um, I love that idea. The problem for me personally is that, you know, I've been building companies for 25 years and running really long weeks, work weeks for that period and so decoupling yeah, my yeah, brain yeah. from having uh, of just the default Having setting. all of those responsibilities and needing to show up. Yeah. yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And it, it's been more difficult for me to sort of shed that than I ever, ever expected. Um, and I'm getting better at it, but there are, there are often, you know, when I was, I was quite, quite tired for a long time, but when you get a bit of rest back, that creativity comes back and it becomes, mm. oh, how can I channel that creativity? And my wife will always, often remind me, just keep it in check so you can really enjoy this next summer, which I'm, I'm enjoying thoroughly. Um, but it wasn't something I thought I could switch it off. And it was definitely something very difficult to do because I have such a curiosity for why someone would interact with a product or a service. Mm. What, what, what makes something so irrefutably great that people go, I really think I'd like that. And then digging in behind the reasons for that and why why you can, or how you can create a business from it or how you can move something socially forward because it doesn't always need to be about business, right? It can be very much about a social cause you're really passionate about, equality, the things like diving into the reasons why it doesn't work, the systems that don't work, the behaviours that are at play. Mm. I find that just intellectually stimulating. Um, so sometimes I've just got to go and not think about stuff like that. But maybe good 
for your new venture, because when you're talking about your army cadet multiplier, what was the oh, term? Force multiplier. Force multiplier. Mm-hmm. You've picked something now where you don't have to be in it that much. That's true. You, you, you're an educator. You're teaching others, mm-hmm. giving others the tools yeah. to do that. Yes. For themselves, for their teams. Exactly. I think their it's, teams. I find it, um, I've been very surprised when I established this firm about, it was only been about, you know, 12 weeks, three months. I've been so surprised about um, this word partnership seems to carry a lot of weight with people. Um, and everyone's got a, their own little definition about what partnership means. Mm. And for me, it's, you know, I, I always, I'm always very curious to hear what other people think that word means because we have that in our personal lives. We also have it in our work lives. And sometimes that definition can carry over incorrectly because if we think about our most intimate relationships with our partners, for example, um, with our partners, it is a partnership for a whole range of very different reasons compared to what we would do in our professional contexts. Um, but people have a very strong um it's just a very strong, how would you describe it? It's a very strong, um, almost emotional connection to the term partnership and they want to see that replicated in, in business, which is brilliant because it just suggests that people want, people know intuitively that they can't do it all themselves. Mm. So if we can find you a way- You need a great team. Yeah, if we can break that apart or we need just a good ecosystem of businesses or organisations we can plug into to sort of become bigger. So some of the most brilliant partnerships that you, you may read about, things like um, for those using PCs um, as opposed to Apple Macs, there was a circumstance back in the late 1980s, early 1990s, where um, Intel, who made the computer chips inside our computers, wanted to become better known as a company. And all the computer manufacturers that made the computers that we use um, said, well, look, you know, no, why would you need to do that? You know, yeah. I, I don't think we need you to be any more prominent than what you are already. They said, well, no, we'd like to do that. So they went to IBM and IBM said, well, what do you want to do? They were the largest original equipment manufacturer in the world. We all had an IBM computer at some point. And they said, well, we would like for you to put a sticker on our on your computers that says Intel Inside, just so we can have better brand awareness for That's our business. Sure. Right. So, I don't know any other parts in a computer apart from Intel. Yeah, and there it is. So they went from being a five hundred million dollar company in you know the early nineteen nineties to an eighteen billion dollar revenue company fifteen years later for a number of reasons. But one of the key ones was people became very familiar with their brand yes. with stickers on all the computers. Now within a year or two years of IBM agreeing to that, all the other equipment manufacturers like Compaq and Hewlett-Packard, they did the same thing. So they all jumped on this big bandwagon and that allowed that one company to really soar Mm. and it became extraordinary. So I see my job in this partnerships realm to sort of say that might look well and truly outside of your reach. It just seems too big, just too historic. But these partnerships are being forged every day. And all you need to do is have a mindsetness and a discipline of process to walk through them, to explore what, how can my business, my organization, my not-for-profit partner more effectively to achieve the outcome that we have. And what a lot of people have thought over time, which is incorrect, is that my ambition, my goal is incompatible with another organization's goal, which couldn't be further from the truth. You just haven't found the right one yet. Mm. And so what we do now is we help companies understand what their ambition is because many people don't know how to express that very well. So when you express yes. it well and you take that to another organization, they go, well, actually, we can help you with that. We'd love to help you with that. And in exchange, we can do one, two, three, four, five. And before you know it, that Venn diagram sort of covers over and you've got really good overlap. And then it's just a matter of the principles of how you're going to work together. So there's a maturity there, though. It's Somebody said once to me that... Um, being in business is like, if you're young in business, it's like the equivalent of your dating years. Mm-hmm. So if you've been in business one or two years, 
you, you're 18 years old on the yep. dating scene, you know? So, like, the longer you've been, the more likely you are to enter into long-term relationships. Agreed. Um, so, I, I guess that there's a learning curve in partnerships and... I, I, I don't want to go to the negative connotations like the fear, the ego. Mm-hmm. What, what's what's the sort of reframing of that? Like, what 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 are the the things to put into your mind? The reframing is the opportunity. Yeah. Right. So, let's put two people side by side. You have somebody's quite young in business, right? They've started their first business, um, and let's call it um, they've created a an event management business, right? Yeah. And they're there to serve a particular geography. And they specialize in weddings. This is making this up. Um, now, in order to make weddings really spectacular, and if you're doing all the event management for that, not having done this myself, mm. there are probably a, a set of suppliers and a set of skills that you need to make that absolutely land for the day of that couple. And you might say, well, I've got to go and try and find how to, I've got to go and learn how to do the design, go and find the furniture, go and find the catering, all the things, because I want people to come to me for the one-stop shop. Right? Yeah, 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 yeah. So. Sure. One-stop shop, is that a dangerous word? Um, it rarely exists. So yeah. when somebody is thinking about that, in the first years of their life, they'll be, they're going to be going, I'm going to have to work really hard to bring all these things together, and I think I'm going to have to bring them all in-house. Yes. Right? When you – now, that same person – could have a different mindset and say, well, actually, what am I great at? Like you might be, I can design and style like no one's business. Yeah. But I'm not a caterer and I'm not a furniture supplier and I'm not all these things. And if that person realizes and can double down on what they're really great at, like that core capability, then and I'll say that's all they need to do. There's a lot that goes into this, but all mm. they need to do is go, well, what other puzzle pieces do I need? And what people often don't do is they don't describe in real detail what those puzzle pieces are. They'll say, oh, I need a caterer. I need a furniture supplier. I need and just headline sort of things. So you sort of know, but anyone anyone who dived into this, they wouldn't know what a furniture like. Where would we go to find a furniture supplier? No idea. But there are people who specialize in furniture supply. So instead of that person saying, I'm going to go and hire 10 people and they're all going to have a particular job, one will be to do the catering, the other one's going to be for furniture. Instead, you could hire a virtual assistant, if you're the only person, who can then go out and research all the great furniture supplies, all the great um, caterers all and all the other materials they need. And then you can go and meet with those people and build an ecosystem of partnerships to mm. supply your business and you could still only be a two-person business, but you have all these things being plugged in, and that is. And you don't have to stop at one, which is an interesting thing. You, that's right. you don't need one furniture supplier. Maybe one does really good uh, Hamptons style right. furniture, and another does exactly. funky retro. Now I know that we're completely bastardizing the design community by thinking about <laughs> this, this kind of example, but the it, the, the, the same thing is true. Um, that idea of having um, a core capability that you can really excel at because that's where you really make the value. People will come to you because you have an eye for design and styling like no one else. Mm. Then you've worked out how to make it as efficient as possible and have redundancy so that if you have, say, four supplies that you use a lot, if one of them falls out, you've still got three. It's not just a single point. So you've worked out how to build that little ecosystem. And then you've got that across the board. And really that just become, that comes down to relationship management and doing great things like always pay them on time, always yes. treat them well and you know respect them and, and go two ways. That can scale a business extraordinarily. And you can take that same example of, of being really good at what you could do. You can apply that to military, you can apply it to software, you can apply it to healthcare, to biotech. And the irony is when you get behind the curtain of a lot of these big companies, like the companies we know and love that are consumer brands, if you got in behind their brands, you would see there is so many partnerships that make those primary brands work, it would blow your mind. And what these larger companies end up doing is having to manage them all simultaneously. So think about maybe a, a very apt brand, at least in our house right now, is Mecca. Yeah. Right? I've never seen more Mecca in my life. But yeah. 
you go into Mecca and they do an amazing Mecca, extraordinary. Yeah, you look at you walk into one of their their shop fronts, and you see all the brands and you see all the ways they're styling it. Um, yeah, not, yeah, that's the sales not, point. That's right. Feature. They're, they're not doing all of that themselves. But when you go back to the head offices, yes. there is so much at play here. And that's where the true value of this is. The marketing is brilliant by all means. And it's 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 really tapped a nerve with a really large audience, which is which is great. But when the leaders of that business are thinking about how do we scale, how do we supply, how do we not sort of lose track of the trends, there are multiple partnerships that are going on for multiple years that go through ebbs and flows. Yeah. But that's what makes the business strong so that they can scale. It's like when you have a party and you allocate everyone to bring... Bring a dish. A dish. Yep. You, the, all the cost and waste and time and energy is not all falling on you. That's and right. everyone has a better time. That's right. That's, that's a great analogy. Yeah, yeah, right. It's the same thing. And so I love going back to the, the basics of that because when you have that conversation with teams and leaders as I do with my team, um, it, we take it back to the basic building blocks. What are you great at? What's the ambition? What else do you need to be great? Yeah. And then we can help you work that out. And all the detail, all the technical stuff around contracting and agreements and how the, how the remuneration works, all that, 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 comes, that comes later. Hmm. But it's about having um, that understanding about what you need to be greater than what you are right now and the, the way that people's shoulders drop when they realise that that's actually a thing and ironically, that this is how most of the world works. It takes the pressure off them to have to do everything themselves. And that's the key. That is. That is the key. That's what everyone partnership. wants. Yep. And it's it ease up a little bit. Hey? A little bit. <laughs> Just a little bit. Yeah. And what excites you? What, what do you see the future of startups, businesses, partnerships? Um, I think that the world is not in great shape. At the moment, as you know, the data recording this, we're about to go into Christmas of 2023. Um, we have war breaking out or imminently going to break out in other parts of the world. We've got a whole bunch of climate related things. We've got, you know, just without getting depressing, there's a lot going on in the world right now, which is confusing for a lot of people to consume. Mm. Um, and their place in it. What, 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 what do you do? How do we play a role? How do we react? Yeah. How do we communicate? All, all those things. And I think- We're not plugged into that network. So there's not a lot we can do. Well, so a prediction I have, because I'm an optimist, is that I think it's going to force people to have a set of conversations with each other that they or, that we ordinarily would avoid. Yeah, right. It'll allow us to sort of go, look, we're just really tired. The world is overwhelmed. Um, but if we just take a break and take a, just a big deep breath, there are conversations that we can have that will help us navigate our way through some of the most pressing issues. The risk is that we don't take that breath and that we keep on in our own minds thinking about all the problems and how you can play a role and it just sort of goes around a bit of a spin cycle. Yeah, it doesn't yeah, yeah. actually find its way out into a discourse or a deliberation where you and I can go, what yeah. are you thinking about this? Could we, like, how do we understand that problem really well so that we're not just show, throwing, you know, random ideas that, you know, that you think are solutions but actually aren't? How do we become the problem experts in something that we think is re we're really passionate about? Knowing that there's a whole bunch of really smart people out there who are trying to get into the bigger problems themselves and just be good at that one problem. So, you know, they are big problems and there's a lot of they're massive. fear in that, you know, like how can I solve such a huge problem that mm. you you say a couple of words about and there's an offense or there's a misunderstanding because yeah. it's hard to know the truth of the situation. Yeah. So. Well, I think the, the fear to, I mean, the, the antidote to fear is always knowledge. And idea right? sharing, sure. conversations. And, and just sort of getting as rounded a understanding of an issue as you can. Yeah. So, you know, we can't solve everything. We get overwhelmed very, very quickly if, we, if, we, if we're charged with that. But let's say, for example, we wanted to understand more about um, the role of um, salinity in the Murray-Darling Basin as it relates to agriculture, right? 
big yeah, reports yeah. released recently, that seems like a big environmental thing. Now, it's not as big as climate change generally, but it's, it's something that's affecting a lot of Australia right now. How would you, if you, if you think that's really important, there is a huge number of people you can go and speak to, learn from, watch YouTube videos about, sure. and just sort of go, I'm going to spend the next amount of time just learning as much as I can about that. Because all the other issues, there's other people doing that. I can maybe but focus on this bit. That's also interesting because often the big problems are solved by somebody solving the little problems. <laughs> Every Everyone day. solves yeah. the little problems. And they're like, oh, the Murray Basin has is affected in this way. We can take that out to a larger scale and understand this better now. Because That's right. somebody's taken the time to do the... Little problems, and maybe yeah. it is the same. Maybe Just to it understand. is. It is looking at a big situation like a war, fear, misunderstanding, mm -hmm. uh, non-communication, uh, oppression. Yep. All these things. How do we look at that at a micro level? And yeah, I think just trying to find a way to understand more about that issue. Um, and there's always more than two sides to every story, right? Yeah. So, whatever sources you think about, um, and this is this is uh, coming back to partnerships again. This is the same sort of situation. So, if you were to think about um, another organisation you want to partner with, or someone you want to get to know, you could Google it, and you could take the top five results and go, okay, I'm going to use that to inform whatever I think about that particular issue. Yeah, the yeah, issue. yeah, yeah. The problem with that is it gives you one dimension. So the other dimensions are I'm going to go and talk to that person directly or I'm going to go and talk to the experts who know a lot about that thing. And that just takes a bit of time. We have to lean into that so that we can do better at whatever the outcome is we're trying to aim for. Without doing that, I think we just end up in the spin cycle of overwhelm and that's really problematic. So to answer your question, long, long story to that, I think the thing that's going to be happening is that people are going to be more open to having more in-depth conversations and I'm looking forward to people just asking really good questions yeah. and just leading with questions and curiosity as opposed to leading from a place of fear which often results in remarks, snide comments, division Resentment. and it's, it's that's not helping anybody. So whether it's in business, personal life, in a cultural context, um, all I can see happening in the circles I'm in at the moment beyond a lot of fear, is a bunch of people stepping up and just going, I just want to ask some more questions. Yeah. And rarely, is, rarely will somebody say, I don't, I don't want to hear your question. No, yeah. Right? Because it's good people will always be more curious. And so if people want to learn more about partnerships, mm. you have your own podcast. Do you want to yes. explain a few things that you're doing around uh, yeah. educating people in partnerships? Yeah, thank you. So um, my website, philhsc.com, has all the resources that we have built, which includes you know, an introduction to partnerships course, which is a free email-based course that you sign up to and you get one email a day for six days. Um, and that's all about sharing the framework that we use when we diagnose an organization and their partnerships. Uh, it also just gives tools and tips that you can use today. Um, we have a podcast on YouTube, also one on Apple Podcasts, which is all about um, answering questions of people that write into us and say, look, what do I do about this thing? And my colleague Mel Rosenthal and I, we have a, a monthly Ask Me Anything episode that we sort of go back to. Um, in addition to that, we have interviews with people who are extraordinary leaders who have forged the world's most interesting but unknown partnerships so that we can sort of dive sure. right back into who are the two people sitting at the coffee table like at the cafe that day that said, you know, wouldn't it be cool if we did this? And then 10 years later, it's something massive. So those conversations, they're, they're happening now as well. Um, but really my day job um, beyond having a, a bit of a break at the moment is to spend time with leaders and their teams trying to work out when somebody, when a company says, we are going to grow through partnerships, helping them work that out and sort of adding real detail to what that means. So the next 10 years of their business, we can lay all the groundwork in the next six to 12 months and then the rest of it can be a capability they can go and build around the world. So that's, that's what we do. And then as overwhelming as another job 
of building partnerships may seem to a business person, hmm. it's it's a counterintuitive not to. Um, I think that once people realise the opportunity that's lying at their feet to grow their own business through a partnership lens... And be part of a wider community. The opportunity is extraordinary. Yeah, yeah. And um, I just invite, you know, leaders across the board to ask the question, how do we grow through partnership? And to put that question to their teams... Mm. and allow that just to sort of sit with them for a while. Because there's one thing for a small business or a large business to keep on selling through its existing ways, right? They, there are 100-year-old businesses that have been selling the same way for a long time. It's fine. They've done quite well. But that's because there's incentives around that. When you go back to another company or another smaller business and say, well, how are you going to grow? You could throw money at advertising and marketing as much as you like. Or you can find the really clever ways to support another brand, another business, and that finds you a really cost-effective way of selling and growing your customer base while supporting another partner. And just exploring what those options could be is, uh, for most leaders, is quite an exhilarating prospect because it's usually outside their existing playbook. Mm. So it gives them a chance to sort of flex their muscle a bit and sort of go, actually, we can grow into these new markets through these ways um, and now there's advice and help to, to make that work beautiful well mm. thank you so much for chatting i've taken a lot away from that personally and cool. uh, i might go and have to build a directory <laughs> after <laughs> this most <Nice> welcome <laughs> um if you found that episode valuable please uh Please share our podcast and uh, review it if you can. Uh, next time we are talking to Jane Thorpe, who is a business development manager who I've met over three times through her networking in different ways. And we will be talking about getting the most of getting out of the office, like we've also been talking about, and saying hi to some strangers. So thanks for listening. Have a great week.